You're listening to the weekly sermon from Antioch East Baptist Church, located in Magnolia, Arkansas. For more information about our faith and local congregation, visit AntiochEast.com. What are fathers good for? In times past, a father was the pivotal person in most any home. He was the head of a sprawling household that included wife and children, but much more than that, whole economies of nations were built on the home. Um, under, Under the father's care would have been servants, slaves, employees, a business, uh, much, much property. In fact, the father was so pivotal in the household, in the the Greco, the Roman, even the medieval world, that if the father passed, often the household just split apart. um, If he passed unexpectedly, because he was that pivotal in the home. Today, the importance of fatherhood and fathers seems to have drastically changed. Fathers are good for keeping up with the remote control or for making sure that the door stays closed on a hot summer day while the air conditioner is running. Fathers are good at noticing the best gas prices. Right? But that's about it, it seems, which honestly is not much. In fact, feminism today has told women for decades that they don't need fathers or husbands in their life. So fathers aren't necessary, I suppose. In fact, today we have something called gender fluidity. And these ideas say that even women can be fathers. So I guess fathers aren't unique. Unnecessary, not unique. When they are there, there's not much importance for them. You even have uh, children's TV shows and movies that has the the basic storyline of there's a father at the beginning of the story who's archaic, set in his ways. And as the movie or TV show goes on, you get to the end And the father comes around to notice that the child is the wise one or to notice that the the school is the wise one and notice that he was just set in his ways and he needed to change. Fathers are dull, it seems. We don't associate wisdom with fatherhood. What are fathers good for? Well, this is a question that I think our passage will answer today. There's There's several directions I could have taken this passage So I I could preach this passage again and emphasize something different. Um, But this is is what is a burden upon me today as your youth pastor, thinking about families, especially every week. I read this passage and I immediately asked the question, what are fathers good for? So let's look at our passage. Joshua 24, verses 14 through 28. This is Joshua speaking. Now, therefore, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. 
And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwelt in this land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. Verse 21, and the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. So Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now, therefore, he said, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. Verse 26, Then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by a sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness to us, For it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. It shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. So Joshua let the people depart, each to his own inheritance. Joshua 24 comes at the conclusion of the book. You may not have noticed this is the last chapter. Um, so, So Israel has come into the promised land. God has defeated all their enemies. And Joshua has brought them to a place called Shechem. That's where they are. He mentioned it in verse uh, 25. They're at a place called Shechem, and Joshua is about to die. This is his parting address to the people. And he's encouraging them to serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. For those of you who are interested, uh, this passage follows the pattern of a vassal treaty that was popular in the Bronze Age. In in a vassal treaty, there was a master and there was someone who was subordinate. Um, And and this follows that pattern. God is the master. Israel is the subordinate. Now, the main point of our passage is found at the beginning. This is the, the central point. If you miss this, nothing else that comes afterwards uh, will make much sense. The main command is in verse 14. Joshua says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Serve God. That's the point. That's the command. It's not a suggestion. It's a, an imperative. 
The word serve occurs 14 times in this passage. If you print this passage out and you highlight words that repeat themselves, you're not gonna find a word that repeats like serve does. Maybe God, maybe Lord, but not, not a verb. So I wanna give you three qualities of this service. What does it mean to serve the Lord? What does it look like to serve the Lord? And specifically, what is the service that Joshua is calling for in this passage? Three qualities. The first one is that serving God is exclusive. Serving God is exclusive. Joshua contrasts serving God with serving false gods. In verse 14, Israel can either serve the gods their fathers served in Egypt, idols, gods like Horus and Ra, or they can serve Yahweh, the God who delivered them from Egypt. They can serve the gods of the Amorites, or they can serve God. But the point is that there's no middle ground. Joshua says you either serve them or God. You have to make a decision. Serving God means leaving behind all other gods. It's exclusive. It excludes other service. God is not interested in your partial service. God doesn't just want you on the Lord's day. He wants you on Monday while you're driving to work. He doesn't just want your fingers and your toes. He wants your arms as well. He doesn't just want your bed frames and your silverware. He wants your peanut butter. He wants your Christmas tree. This is getting a little silly, you might think, but the point is everything must be consecrated to God. Everything must be consecrated to God. There, there can be no part of our life of which we can say, God can have all of that, but this, this is mine. I get to decide what to do with this. I get to be the Lord of this part of my life. God says, bury that idol. Joshua says, serve the Egyptian god Horus or serve the god of Abraham. Serve the Mesopotamian god Baal or serve the god of Abraham. Serve the American god money or serve the god of Abraham. You have to make a decision. Serving God is exclusive. Secondly, secondly, serving God is sacrificial. Serving God is sacrificial. And by that, I, I, I mean worshipful. It's an act of worship. If you go from Genesis to Revelation, you're not going to see much distinction between the concepts of serving God and worshiping God. Everything we do for God should be worship. Amen. Everything. Everything that we do should be, be an action that is laid on an altar of which we say, God, you get to call the shots on this. Paul says this in Romans 12. Brother Ron will get to this eventually, where he says that we should present our bodies as a living sacrifice, which is our spiritual worship. Serving God is worshiping God. He says something similar in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So serving God means offering up your life 
as a sacrifice to God. So serving God is exclusive. Serving God is sacrificial. Now this third quality we're going to spend a little more time on. Third, serving God is patriarchal. Serving God is patriarchal. The word patriarchy might leave a bad taste in your mouth. We're going to talk about that. Because the word patriarchy simply refers to male leadership. That's all that that word means. That's all that that word means. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are called the patriarchs. The Bible uses this word, and I don't have any intentions of surrendering that word to the culture. The Bible is actually clear that patriarchy in and of itself is actually a good thing. Now, I could go through many passages and talk about this, but perhaps the best evidence for my point is to see how Scripture describes God for us. He is revealed to us as masculine. Verse 14 says to serve the Lord, to serve him. God is referred to in the masculine in verses 18, 19, 20, 22, 24, and 27 of our passage. All theophanies in the Old Testament are of men. For example, Joshua 5, 13 through 15, the, uh, the commander of the Lord's army. That theophany is a man. We worship God the Father, not God the Mother. When God revealed himself to us on the first Christmas, he chose to place the fullness of deity in a man, Jesus Christ. Jesus, in fact, is the exact imprint of God's nature. And Jesus is a man, and that's not a coincidence. This man, Jesus Christ, Acts says, upholds, or excuse me, rules the universe. So Jesus is a man, and he's in charge of the universe. Hebrews 1 says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And Romans 2 says that he will one day judge it. So the feminist agenda of trying to take the concept of male leadership and twist it into something awful It's a lot like sitting in a submarine and arguing that water doesn't exist. You're you're at the bottom of the ocean in a small metal tube. Water is everywhere. So you you can rant about it and argue against it, but it's all around you. Well, we, we can complain about patriarchy. That's fine. But keep in mind, you don't live in your world. You live in God's world. You're on a planet ruled by the God-man Christ. Patriarchy is everywhere because Christ rules everything. There are abuses of patriarchy. There are horrible abuses. There There have been men in leadership in history who have done things that I don't even want to hint at from this pulpit But that's not the point. The answer to oppression is not doing away with male leadership. You don't disband the guards when the enemies are at the gates. The answer to oppression is repentance and the gospel of Jesus Christ. The answer answer to bad patriarchs is not feminism. It's men drenched in the gospel like Joshua 
who want to lead their homes to serve Jesus? That's the answer. That's the answer. And I know it can be hard to wade through these issues sometimes, but let's keep talking about it. Our passage is actually a conversation between patriarchs. The the passage refers to the people in Israel, but if you look back at verse 1, Joshua is talking to the leaders. He's talking to the heads of households. He's talking to men. That's the conversation going on. There's Joshua and there's the heads of households. And that's the conversation in this passage. When Joshua decides to serve God in verse 15, notice what he says. If it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He decides for his house. That means he's the head of his house. The word house comes from the Hebrew word bayit. Bayit. It means household. So he's not talking about the clay and dirt and bricks. He's talking about the people. Joshua may have had servants, probably did, employees. When he says household, he means everything, everyone, and everything under his authority. And Paul affirms that structure to the home in Ephesians 5. Now, um, so God has designed the home patriarchal. But what do I mean that serving God is patriarchal? What what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is that we need to rejoice and step into God's design for father leadership in the home. We need to rejoice and step into God's design for father leadership in the home. Serving God is never something we do outside of church and family. You don't just serve God on your own. You're part of a community. You're here today, so I know that's true, even if you're a visitor. If you're single, out of your parents' house, and don't have anyone living in your house, then you need to serve God in a patriarchal way by helping our church raise up godly men and women for this task. You've seen them here today on the stage. We need your help. We need your help. However, most of you are part of a home. Most of you are part of a home. Uh, Let me speak to you now, and and the remainder of the sermon will be directed at you mainly. Husband, father, you are the head of your household. And that's not something you chose to be. I've said this before, but in Ephesians 5, Paul commands husbands to love their wives. But he never commands them to be the head. You notice that? You can love or not love your wife, but you can't choose to not be the head of your household. That's part of how God designed the family. So you're either a faithful head or an unfaithful head. You're either a faithful patriarch or an unfaithful patriarch. You're the head of your household. And that means, this is important, that means that you're responsible for everything that's going on in that home. I am responsible 
for everything going on in my home. If, if your wife overloads herself with responsibilities, this is your problem, not simply hers. You don't have the luxury of writing off your wife's problems as her business. No, it's your business because you're responsible for her. If your teenage son has a habit of drinking alcohol, it's your problem, not just his. You don't get to say, well, he's nearly grown. I don't have to concern myself with this issue. No, his issues are your issues because you're responsible. You're the covenant head of your home. Patriarchy is not about having the authority to tell your wife to go make a sandwich. That's, that's, what, that's what is always brought up when you start talking about these words and concepts. That, that's silly. That's like me saying that being an officer in the army is all about telling privates to get down and shine my shoes in the rain. Technically, yeah, an officer has the authority to do that. But that, that's not what being an officer is about. Technically, you have that authority, but you only have that authority because you're responsible. So you have authority only because uh, you have responsibility. Patriarchy is about guarding and cultivating the home. You are a warrior, father, and a farmer. You are to help your family flourish in safety. You're the Lord of the house who stoops down like a slave to serve your family and who rises up like a deadly lion to defend it. That's what patriarchy is. This is patriarchy in the home. And it's a quality of the service that Joshua admonishes us towards. Joshua is our example, men, that we should decide for our homes today that we will serve the Lord. Joshua said, as for me and my house, and we should say the same thing. Joshua is an example for you women that you would pray for and help your husband in this great task that is set before him. Now, these are three qualities of serving God. Serving God is exclusive, it's sacrificial, and it's patriarchal. And, and this is what we see in verses 14 through 15. The rest of our passage, verses 16 through 28, I believe give us two warnings about serving God. Two warnings about serving God that we should keep in mind. The first is this. Serving God is fruitful. Now that may not sound like a warning. It's fruitful. Let me explain. Israel's response to Joshua in verse 15 is encouraging. These patriarchs agree with Joshua how foolish it would be to forsake the Lord and serve other gods. That would be silly, Joshua. Of course we will serve the Lord. Of course. But Joshua saw something in those men that perhaps we can't see in verses 16 through 18. You have to remember Joshua has spent his whole life with these people. And he's led them through Canaan. He knows them very well. He saw something. Now, 
when Joshua responds in verse 19, he says this, you cannot serve the Lord for he is a holy God and he is a jealous God. Now, Joshua is not speaking in a forensic or absolute sense. So, for example, Brother Ron's preaching through Romans right now. Joshua's not talking like Paul in Romans 3 that no one can perfectly serve God and justify himself. That's not the service Joshua's talking about. Joshua is not talking about a perfect service that justifies. We know that's not what Joshua's talking about because in verse 15, he says that he will serve the Lord. So if Joshua is talking about serving God for justification, then he said that he can justify himself. That's not what he's talking about. Whatever this service is that Whatever the service is that's being talked about, it's something that Joshua's going to do, but Israel can't do. Joshua said he'll do it, but Joshua said Israel can't do it. Well, the answer is found in verse 20, I think. Requires a little bit of thinking. Joshua says, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. So the issue is not guilt for imperfect service, but rather judgment for absolute apostasy. Joshua saw the heart of Israel was already wanting to turn away from God. You understand what he's talking about if you know the history of the Old Testament. What's going to happen in the book of Judges? They're going to turn away from God. And they're going to keep turning away from God. Joshua says, listen, if you forsake the Lord God and serve foreign gods, there will be consequences. God will turn and do you harm. Notice that the men Joshua spoke to said they would serve God because he had done great things for them. But they didn't say they would serve God because he was a holy and jealous God. To be feared. That's why Joshua says God may do them harm after doing them good. See, here's the problem. Here's the problem these men uh, were, were stuck in. These men misinterpreted God's blessings. These men misinterpreted God's blessings. They thought God's blessings meant that they were special. Not that God was gracious. They saw the mighty acts that God performed for them. And they thought, man, we must be something special. We're the chosen people of God. The offspring of Abraham. Of course we will serve God. He brought us out of slavery. He performed these great signs for us. He drove out the people of Canaan. Of course we'll serve God. Joshua sees that attitude. Brother Ron's brought that out in Romans as well. And Joshua says, no, you don't understand. God is not blessing you because you're important. He's blessing you because he's gracious and he wants to glorify himself through you. So if you leave him, you will leave the blessings. 
There are no benefits outside of the grace of God. We understand that. Joshua was talking about apostasy. Israel was presuming upon the blessings of God. And that put them at risk of losing the blessings of God. God's blessings were supposed to humble Israel to obedience. He says this in verse 13. I love verse 13. It's not in our passage, but look at it. God says, I have given you land for which you did not labor and cities which you did not build and you dwell in them. You eat of the the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. Sovereign grace. But Israel interpreted it not as they need to obey God, but as they were special. So men, listen, as patriarchs, we need to learn a lesson from Israel's failure here. Read the failure of these men and don't make the same mistake. Do not presume upon the blessings of God. Do not assume that God will bless your home simply because you want him to or because you think he should or because you call the home Christian. Does your household serve the living God? Do you fear God? That's the very first thing Joshua calls us to in verse 14. He says, serve the Lord. But before that, he says, fear the Lord. Fearing God means respecting him above everything else. Fearing God comes before obedience. comes before blessing. It comes before wisdom. Where there is no fear of God, there is godlessness. The passage Brother Ron preached a short time ago, uh, Romans uh, 3, verses 9 through 18, that last verse says there's no fear of God before their eyes. Is that right? And, and that, that is the foundational error. And all these other errors come from that. So the, the concrete slab, the, the bottom foundational slab of a Christian home has to be the fear of God. Is your house built on that foundation? Don't just nod about it. Think about it. When you plan a weekly schedule for your family, is God at the top of the agenda? Is God above baseball or ballet? Does God have the final say in how the home is governed? Or do you just make up rules based on what you think is is wise? Is the Bible ever considered? If your family does not fear God, then your family does not serve God. And you, as the patriarch, are the one who's responsible for addressing that problem. Now, here's where I get into explaining the warning. You may still be thinking, okay, but what? (laughs) How is serving God fruitful? How is that a warning? Well, the consequences of failing to address this problem are grave. And pay attention because, as I said, this is where I'm going to explain why fruitful is a word of warning. If we as patriarchs, if we as heads of our home, as fathers and husbands, if we forsake God, Joshua says that he will not forgive our sins. That includes our children's. Now, remember, Joshua is talking in a general sense. 
Don't, don't think of justification. Don't think of you can be justified and if you do something, you can be unjustified. It's not what he's talking about. Joshua's talking about apostasy, leaving the faith and proving that you were never justified and convince your children to never come to Christ in faith. He's referring to what happened in Israel only a few decades later. Look at verse 31. This is so bittersweet. I hope you don't miss this. Hope you don't miss this. Verse 31. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. It's good, right? These men did serve the Lord. And I don't have any reason to think that, that, that they turned to idols while they were alive. But let me read for you from Judges 2, verses 6 through 10. Judges 2, 6 through 10. Should just be just a couple more pages in your Bible. Judges 2, starting in verse 6. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. It's the end of the passage we just read. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old, and they buried him within the border of his inheritance at timnath Haras, in the mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of Mount Gash. Now listen. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them, who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. What happened? One generation later, they don't know the Lord. What happened? What wicked children, right? Well, partly, yeah. But what unfaithful patriarchs. You know what that tells you? That tells you that the men Joshua was talking to in our passage they as individuals served the Lord, but they didn't teach their children to serve the Lord. They were faithful individuals, but they were unfaithful patriarchs. They worshiped God on their own, but they failed to teach their children to worship God. And that, brothers, that is the cost of your unfaithfulness. Failed patriarchy brings generational curses. We must realize as a church that serving God bears fruit, but there's no promise that the fruit will always be good. If you serve God faithfully, God will bless your work by his grace. There's fruits of life and joy and blessing and grace upon grace. But if you serve God unfaithfully, <clears throat> the fruit is death. Poor leadership, or excuse me, any leadership, your leadership will cause generational ripples. They will either be ripples of blessing or ripples of cursing. The family tree that is yet to grow is forming a great cloud of witnesses 
to watch in anticipation for what choices you will make as a leader. Will you lead your family to serve the Lord? It's not enough to say, as for me, I will serve the Lord. That's what these men said. You have to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord. Now, second, this warning is brief, but it's worth mentioning before we close. The second warning is that serving the Lord is binding. Serving the Lord is binding. After Joshua was rebuked, the men of Israel insisted upon making a commitment. Joshua says, you're witnesses against yourself. And he, and he, um, he takes a stone, leans it against an oak tree. If you have a different translation, it might say terebinth tree. It's the same thing. And he says, that stone is a witness against you that you've chosen to serve the Lord. Well, the point is that Israel's choice is the kind of choice that is witnessed. Joshua's not saying that rocks have ears and eyes and, uh, and memories. It's not what he's saying. He's saying that the kind of choice that these men made is the kind of choice that you can't get away from. Once Israel makes this commitment, they can't pretend like they never made it. The decision is permanent. It's binding. It's everlasting. So the warning is, men, if you choose that your house will serve the Lord, keep in mind that you will be bound to that choice. You will be bound to that choice. So, so let's be done with half-heartedness. This is a great time to be done with the half-heartedness. Listen, if, if you want a house that is a pigsty of sin, that serves the devil, go do it. Go, go. There's, we have four or five doors in this sanctuary. Go out, have your house be like that. But if you come in here, if I come in here and I say, my house serves the Lord, let's serve the Lord. Fear God. Be serious, man. Steal yourself. Serve God. Now, let me just say, wives, uh, help your husband. Pray for him. You, you might have been thinking in your head of a list of things that he doesn't do very well. Uh, take that list and do away with it, okay? And instead, maybe make a list of things that, that you could do better. We all have responsibilities. We all have responsibilities. Your, your husband has a plow he has to push, but you have one you have to push. Let's pray for each other and encourage one another. Amen. Children, no father is perfect. There's no greater respect you can give your father than to honor him. No, no greater gift than to respect him, I mean. Um, and when your father fails, remember that Christ is your savior and you have a perfect father in heaven. Amen. Always. Now, in closing, in closing, <clears throat> let me just address two concerns that, that fathers you may be having as I finish this heavy sermon this morning. First of all, you may feel overwhelmed with the high calling of fatherhood. You may feel overwhelmed with the high calling of fatherhood. Let me say this. God made you for a fight. God made men to get calluses. He made men for war. 
Christian life is warfare. So don't, don't, don't cower before it. Stand up. March forward. You belong to a church that loves you. If you don't, here we are. Come join us. We'd love to have you join us. God will help you. He will fight for you if you say, I will do my best. He will fight for you. Second of all, second of all, if you start changing things in your home, especially right after this sermon, (laughs) then you're admitting that you were doing things wrong before. How honorable is that? That's embarrassing, right? Well, I, I want you to think about the place Shechem. Shechem was important, not only for what Joshua was doing, but for what happened hundreds of years before. Hundreds of years before, centuries earlier, Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, had his family. He took them to Shechem. Now, Jacob was a rascal. You know that. Uh, And he had tolerated idols in his family, actual idols that they worshipped. But something interesting happened in Genesis 35. I'll let you read it. It's at the beginning of the chapter on your own. Jacob said, I've had enough. And he took the idols from his family at Shechem and he buried them, the text says, under an oak tree, under a terebinth tree. It was the same tree that Joshua now spoke beside. Now, when you read that story of Jacob saying enough is enough, taking the idols of his family and burying them under the tree, what do you think? Do you think, oh, that's so shameful. Are you embarrassed for Jacob? No. This is Jacob's finest hour. There's, he's noble and honorable. Listen, you have no reason to think that your repentance would be anything different. Never be ashamed to recommit yourself to the Lord. Never be ashamed to renew the covenant with the Lord. Never be ashamed of that. Never be ashamed of that. So, what are fathers good for? I've given you three qualities, two warnings, various exhortations. Fathers, far from being simply the guardians of the remote control, (laughs) are the guardians of the entire home. Fathers are so important that their faithfulness can bless a family for generations and their unfaithfulness can curse a family for generations. Fathers are divinely appointed stewards of the house that we simply can't do without. When a nation, a culture, a church loses fatherhood, they will quickly progress into destruction. The father is the pivotal person in the home.